Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're looking at weird science in Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, I hear we're having a big get-together. Yeah, our fantastic listeners are once again organising another convention on our Discord server, a virtual convention, of course. This will be the next iteration of A Weekend with Good Friends, taking place between the 20th and the 22nd of August. If you're interested in running a game, act quickly, because the sign-ups for GMs start on the 31st of July and run through to the 5th of August. There'll be a form which we'll link to from the show notes that you can go to and submit your game there. And then player sign-ups run between the 6th and the 13th of August. There will be links in the show notes that explain everything and ask questions. We'll answer some of them. And as always, you can find those show notes at blasphemoustomes.com. And Paul, I understand that you've been making some appearances on video. Myself and Mike Mason were invited by Nathan on Arkham Studios, that's a YouTube channel, and we did a couple of videos providing examples of the chase rules. I ran uh, Nathan and Mike through uh, a foot chase and a car chase, and Nathan's done a lovely job of presenting those with kind of graphics and illustrations with the three of us playing our characters and, and me GMing it as they go through them. So there'll be links to that on the website, blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, weird science in Call of Cthulhu. So maybe we should start off by talking about what typifies weird science. We do see it in Lovecraft's writing, but it's maybe not like the first thing people think of they think of like Cthulhu and they think of you know shoggoths and and investigators and so on so like weird science does crop up how does it crop up it's science and it's a little weird okay join us next week when we talk about something else <laughs> so i guess one one of the things that um we also see is magic in lovecraft's writing you know we see uh old man waitley Joseph Kerwin and people like that using magic. But then we see people like Herbert West actually more like taking a leaf out of Dr. Frankenstein's book, taking corpses and like reanimating them. So what would you say typifies weird science? You can almost draw parallels between magic and science in the original works. They're very formulaic types of spells and types of magic that are being cast like very much thinking back to the Dunwich Horror. It seems like there's a very definite progression of steps they need to go through. It's almost as if they're using the Necronomicon as almost a bit like a scientific manual that's saying these are the steps of the experiment that you need to perform. So there's they're probably, you could almost view them as two sides of the same coin, that thematically they might be a little different in the methods in which they're conducted, but in the whole they're following very much a similar kind of thematic structure. What would you see as the difference between like weird science and magic, Scott? What would you say? Window dressing. They serve within the game and within the fiction the same purposes, but they have different rationales, and that is pretty much it. 
one distinction I saw was like, well, if you want to sort of see the difference between magic and science fiction or science, you can kind of think of the difference between like Star Trek and Star Wars, with Star Trek being the more kind of taking the more scientific rationale. Fewer midichlorians. No. <laughs> we don't talk about that, Matt. <sighs> I saw another argument that like there's science, right? which is real and we have science and it shows us how things work and it's repeatable and it's quantifiable and you know it works it got us to the moon and things like that which are sort of tangible things that you can uh, sort of measure and then there's magic which you know is made up and then there's science fiction which is made up the science in science fiction this is what somebody said like the science in science fiction that isn't actually science that's what you were saying, Scott, isn't it? That, that they're just a, it's just a gloss put on. Well, I was talking specifically about Call of Cthulhu. I think there's a lot of hard science fiction that is based entirely in real science, but that's not the case in Call of Cthulhu and it's not the case in Lovecraft. What in hard science fiction is... Because it is actually science if you can't actually do it. That is a whole different can of worms because... In a lot of cases, scientific theories or scientific ideas which have eventually come into practice being floated first in science fiction. So obviously the classic would be Arthur C. Clarke's Dial F. Frankenstein, which posited the idea of uh, geostationary communication satellites. Those hadn't been an idea before Clarke wrote about them in that story. And as a result, the idea ended up becoming a reality. And what about weird science in Call of Cthulhu? Is it always a bad thing in terms of something that has to be in the hands of the uh, the wrongdoers? I think bad things normally happen to the people that practice them. I mean, Herbert West didn't turn out exactly too great. Spoilers. Yeah, and he is kind of like the main guy in the story, but not really the good guy. Well, is he a good guy? Kind of have an affection for him, but he's not really a good guy. <laughs> I was, I was just resisting the urge to jump into to life to life i'll bring them but but can we put it in the hands of players then i think it'd be remiss not to really i think it's great stuff to muck around with in game as long as you're fully beholden to the fact that your fictional predecessors it didn't end up too well for them i've played in games with you matt so i i very well know that you will seize it with both hands mm -hmm. given the uh, opportunity give me that death ray yeah, of all of us, you seem the one most predisposed to give out the weird science gadgets and so on. Yeah, I remember when we were playtesting the uh, Two-Headed Serpent, I very much took the approach on that uh, pulpometer, the one that dialed it all the way up to 11. And yeah, I love throwing out stuff for PCs to make use of in games, even if it's the point where they get hold of the jetpack and then they suddenly fly into the nearest wall at 300 miles an hour. Well, that's that's their fault. Is I will gladly put the tools in front of them to uh, kind of facilitate their own demise. I just like to see what chaos they make with them along the way. Well, I think that's an interesting point then. So you see it that... Because I think a lot of people would be very cautious about giving their players or allowing their players to get hold of that stuff. Oh, no, embrace it, really. Let, let the PCs run wild. I'd rather have PCs out there doing crazy shit with weird science than kind of sat back there going, oh, no, we best, best not touch that. I mean, this, this is a pulp game. We can't have any excitement or we can't have any, uh, any kind of weirdness <laughs> in this. No, no, we will, we'll, we'll play it safe. No, screw that. I mean, really, if you're going to play something like pulp, really embrace the tropes. And this is a massive trope in that genre. I'd say it's a very different trope than Lovecraft, though, that the whole idea of the weird scientist and the gadgeteer isn't very Lovecraftian. That comes out of 
things like Doc Savage. Mm. The pulp hero weird science archetype is really, I, I'd say, a completely different beast than, say, someone like Herbert West. Oh yeah, very, very true. I mean, but I'm, I'm specifically talking about pulp Cthulhu there. If you're looking at Call of Cthulhu, then I think it's probably weird science should be something that it works great as a MacGuffin. The story is built around, such as you find a resonator that's left behind by a certain Doctor Tillingast, and the, all the mayhem that can be caused by this thing having been turned on or turned off potentially. They make great MacGuffins for stories, and in that case, I think that yeah, they're pretty much bad things will befall befall anyone that comes in contact with them. But for, for Pulp Cthulhu, no hell yeah, give them, give them to the PCs and let them run riot. That's what I say. Well, maybe let's focus on like classic Call of Cthulhu first and sort of talk about how we'd use it in, in that, then take a look at Pulp, because there's definitely, I agree, Matt, there's a lot more scope for using it, I think, in Pulp Cthulhu. Mm. It's kind of built into it. It's got chapters on weird science. So in Call of Cthulhu, would, would you very much keep it to the NPCs? That's the default method I think that's probably the easiest is that you have a story built around an NPC that has built a weird device. Something has gone catastrophically wrong, enter the PCs to try and solve the mess mm. themselves. But I could easily see a more player-led game where it's you have an investigator that's built something that then it's one of them that fulfills the role of kickstarting the catastrophe rather than it being an NPC. It all depends on how you want to structure the story, how kind of tightly you want the PCs involved in the background narrative, and I think either approach works really. Would you give that to the player in the form of a pre-generated character? You know, you've you're a scientist and you develop this thing potentially. If I was doing it as a one shot, but if it was part of an ongoing game, I could almost see myself laying the seeds of this well ahead of time because I like the scenarios that suddenly come out of stuff that's been groundwork that's been laid previously. A bit like the old Hasta Mythos adventure that uh, John Tynes wrote, that you have elements of it that are dropped into scenarios that come beforehand that you play through. It's just this little discrete scene here and there, but then finally culminates in, now you're playing this. Mm. So yeah, having that potentially over a course of notes that people have found in previous investigations left behind by your atypical bad guy, or that it's a goal that they're working towards and that they're trying to build something that will help them achieve said goal, and have that as laying the groundwork to ahead of finally, right, you built your device, you flick the switch, and now all hell breaks loose. I think particularly if the player character, the investigator has had some sanity loss and so on, it's kind of reflecting that perhaps. <laughs> in the way their character has, has changed. We talk about a lot about one-shots, and we do talk about campaigns, but campaigns, when we talk about those, we tend to mean, Master and Last Tap, we tend to mean, you know, those Orient Express and then those sort of longer campaigns. And when we play those, I think there's a tendency to largely stick with what's presented to us by the book. But like you're saying there, Matt, you, you can go with it and what and your players are quite motivated i could see something like what you just described happening halfway through master and last step or something like that you're kind of going off what's written on the page and having a almost like a chapter of your of your own kind of that you you kind of create and if your players kind of want to do that I think it's, yeah, it's great. It adds a lot to the game, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, definitely with masks. I know there's a fair emphasis in certain parts of that on technology. Mm. But if you had an investigator that was, say, investigating, let's say, a particular warehouse or factory without giving away spoilers, mm. and they had a bout of madness, and by the time that they come back round, it's not necessarily that they've trashed the place or run away, but maybe they've started to build something that they don't quite fully understand what it is using the parts that they found around this place, and then 
still their own little personal plot through the rest of the campaign in those long sea voyages or airplane trips between different locations, they can start to try and work out what this thing is that they've started tinkering with or maybe even expand it. And maybe every time they do have a bout of madness, maybe something helps to build this thing a bit more. Oh, yeah. I can see that happening in um, Beyond the Mountains of Madness mm. as well, very much. You know, you've got that little thing in your tent that you're tinkering with. <laughs> and suddenly, all of a sudden, you've got a head attached to it. What? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worth mentioning here that um, many eons ago, back in January 2017, we had an episode uh, number 95 entitled Mythos as Science Fiction. And in that, we looked at Herbert West, we looked at Tillinghast, we looked at Dr. Manoz and various other ones, because we were looking at how the Cthulhu mythos can be viewed as science fiction. So we were kind of pulling out those elements and sort of saying, how you know, is it science fiction and, and how can you kind of use those elements in your game? So I think that's a good one to go back and look at. And what about inspiration from outside of Lovecraft's writings and outside of the Cthulhu mythos? Is there anything there that we can pull into our games to add to this style of play? Science fiction is built on the archetype of the mad scientist. So the original science fiction story was Frankenstein. And obviously H.P. Lovecraft did his version of that with Herbert West Reanimator. But there are so many fantastic mad scientist characters, both from classic fiction and from the pulps and from cinema that followed and so on that we can draw upon and perhaps bring into the mythos. My favourite has always been Dr. Morrow from H.G. Wells's The Island of Dr. Morrow, because the experiments that he conducted there were weird, they were transgressive, they were unnatural, and they were frightening. But at the same time, there's perhaps some nobility of purpose there that perhaps makes it all the worse. I think these are the elements that we're bringing weird science into Call of Cthulhu for having particularly antagonists, but you know, perhaps protagonists who follow this mould. These are the elements we should be looking at. I mean, specifically with Dr. Morrow, I think there's all sorts of cool stuff you could do there with the hybridization and the grafting and the transplantation and so on that he was doing, trying to turn animals into humans in that case. But you could have some equivalent scientist within the mythos who perhaps was doing similar experiments, pulling organs or material that they could graft out of mythos entities and putting them into human beings to enhance their abilities. Mm. I've, it's something I've done myself in a couple of scenarios. It's a trope I keep coming back to just because I love the island of Dr. Morrow so much. I can't remember whether I've brought this up before. I keep going back to the idea of you know some mad scientist, for example, extracting organs from a dimensional shambler and trying to put them into a human being and giving them the ability to teleport between worlds and what kind of effect that might have, what all the, the broken test subjects they've left behind are going to be like and the abilities they have with um, all these strange impulses destroying their minds. I think you could have a load of fun well, fun's probably the wrong word. I think you could get a load of inspiration in standard Call of Cthulhu with exactly that kind of approach. I love the idea of transplanting genetic material out of a dimensional shambler into a person and then just slowly watching their face melt. 
very much resembling the Shambler. So they get, why the long face? Droop. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, H.G. Wells was fantastic inspiration for that kind of stuff. I mean, Dr. Griffin as well from The Invisible Man, I think is a great archetype in terms of looking at the hubris of experimentation like that and the kind of person who might be driven to it because what dr griffin does isn't necessarily that transgressive in itself though you've got to wonder why someone wants to make themselves invisible they're almost certainly not doing it because they want to get up to wholesome things but at the same time he seems to be a megalomaniac, a psychopath, uh, a manipulator. I think as the kind of character you can bring in as an antagonist into a weird science story, then yeah, yeah, I think he's exactly the template that I'd want to use. I think Frankenstein's an interesting one. Cause as I recall, when I think of Frankenstein, I think more of the like the 1930s black and white films and Young Frankenstein and uh, and all those films where we see the big laboratory and the lightning and, and seizing all that stuff. And as I recall, we don't get that in the book. It's 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 almost like um, Dr. Frankenstein has, has created, you know, his creation and that's kind of glossed over. We don't really get the creation story unless I'm misremembering. I don't think we really get that. I must admit it's like 30 years since I read the book. But from my vague memories of it, it's very different to any adaptation that's ever been made of mm. it. Yeah, yeah. That it deals much more with the morality of the creation. Totally, yeah. The subtitle of Frankenstein is The Modern Prometheus. And I think that is what lies at the heart of the mad scientist archetype, particularly that it is this person who is dealing with forbidden knowledge, who is transgressing, who is playing God. That aspect of their psychology is at least as interesting from a story point of view and from a a character point of view if you're putting them into a scenario as the science itself that they're doing yeah it's, it's interesting how in the book that is the focus and yet mm. in the films perhaps more the focus is uh, on the, the weird science and the you know all that laboratory equipment and the and the monster and but also the construction of the monster, you know, the, the actual workings, I think. That's because that's all the stuff that looks cool on screen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it's also stuff that's um, a lot of fun in the games, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think the the morality of it and that, that element of transgression is a really exciting thing to explore in the game. But at the same time, it's something that I don't always like in science fiction because the mad scientist figure, this person who's playing God, who's transgressing and so on, yes, all right, you you have characters like Herbert West and so on or you know, Crawford Tillinghast who are doing incredibly dangerous things. But it becomes shorthand for any kind of scientific progress being bad. And I think that it is too easily repurposed in an anti-intellectual reactionary way. Hmm. And that I really don't like, that any time there's some new scientific discovery, like genetically modified crops a few years back, immediately everyone was talking about Frankenstein crops and so on, and being presented as, this is science going too far, people playing God, stuff like that. That's because it's something scary and frightening and new that the layman doesn't understand. But there isn't an inherent immorality in trying to 
change the world, there is only, as far as I'm concerned, a question of morality in what you do with that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it does remind me very much of the kind of classic Luddite response. Oh, the machines mm. are going to take our jobs. Ah, science is going to uh, change the way we live, and it's we don't like change. Rah, get the pitchforks and burning torches out. So I kind of feel that people would find some way to react against that stuff, even if there was no science fiction or any of these kind of like Frankenstein novels or anything like, oh, like, sure. like that. You know, they'd call back to the Bible or, or some, you know, some book or some stories because basically inherently they're kind of very conservative and resistant to change and, and anything sort of like that, that they feel is, is threatening and yeah absolutely they, they this phrase frankenstein whatever is attached to, to various things recently there was a story about some microscopic life being found in like deep in the frozen ice or something in antarctica and everybody's mm-hmm. like don't haven't you watched the thing you know, <laughs> yes. you know where this goes and you know it's a joke but i think people do have a fear of that stuff oh yeah and and, and there are certainly writers who have capitalized on that i mm. always think the worst example is michael Crichton. he definitely had his merits at times but i think he for someone who wrote science fiction was a deeply reactionary and frightened writer mm. jurassic park for example presents the this fairly wonderful feat of genetic engineering and a fairly well-meaning character who is resurrecting these these dinosaurs and creating entertainments out of them and so on. From the author's point of view, there is no question that this is a bad thing because this is mankind playing God. This is science going too far. This is somehow inherently transgressive. That that whole line in there about... Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Which seems to lie at the heart of that story. It's something that crops up in a number of his other books as well. I think that seeps into the popular psyche so much that... It, to some extent, poisons scientific discourse. I was even thinking back to the likes of the Andromeda strain, where it takes mm-hmm. almost a single grain of sand that gets caught up in the scoop. When that returns to Earth, all the havoc that causes and the, the sheer horror, mm-hmm. because this thing mutates so quickly and is completely and utterly alien. Mm. It's like, no, we don't want to go to space. We're safe here. No, 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 don't go outside our front door. No, 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 no. Yeah. I mean, I guess if he created a story where we brought back dinosaurs and it was a nice theme park and everybody went around it and had a good time, <laughs> it yeah. wouldn't be such a great story and i think that thing of sort of saying we can do this but should we do it that's really sort of latching into that conservative frightened part of our brains and yeah. i think that's effective because we re- we react to it i don't know if, if it's true that he as the author is genuinely worried about that and warning us about it as an author i think he was yeah oh, right because okay. Crichton was a, a weird character he was a trained doctor if i remember correctly and he mm. wrote a lot of science fiction but at the same time you know towards the end he became very sort of oddly anti-scientific and one of his last great works was a polemic against concerns about uh, climate change i think he was fundamentally really quite a, a reactionary character Hmm. I think I've got a copy of the Andromeda Strain around here. I don't think I've got any other of his books. But I remember seeing plenty of his films. He, he was a pretty good director and pretty good screenwriter because I loved the original Westworld film. I think that's fantastic. Again, another example of a science run amok. Let's create mm. this entertainment out of all these realistic androids. Oh, of course, they're going to rise up against us. You're right, Paul. I mean, it makes for good entertainment. It introduces conflict into the story, but it does 
at the same time, teach us that very, as Matt said, Luddite lesson of the machines are bad, progress is bad, science will destroy us. Well, I think that's an interesting issue to explore anyway, actually. When you think about weird science in Call of Cthulhu in mm. the game and in the stories, even if it's in Pulp Cthulhu, your example earlier, Matt, of it's, it's exciting for you as Keeper to let your players get their hands on weird science gadgetry because you know it's going to go wrong. So <laughs> so is we is an aspect of weird science that it always either goes wrong or leads to something that is objectionable in some way. Yeah. It's not like weird science is, is giving us a cure for cancer, you know? Or, or if it does, it presents a whole worse problem in the process as a side effect. Exactly. There are science fiction stories that work against that there are certainly some where these apparently frightening changes turn out to be beneficial or transformative in ways that aren't wholly destructive i interviewed adrian Tchaikovsky a while back and i think his novel children of time is a great example of this in that it does have this element of hubris this element of mad science at the beginning that leads to this animal uplift program that inadvertently creates an entire planet full of intelligent spiders this sounds absolutely horrifying and from a human perspective these now large smart spiders that have worked out how to make tools and enslave ants as workers and build civilizations and and pass on information from generation to generation developing their own scientific methods this sounds potentially terrifying but in the end it turns out to be an entirely beneficial thing oh. i'm not saying that i don't want any stories where scientific hubris destroys us all but i'm just saying it's it's nice to see stories that deviate from that that don't just fall into the lazy archetypes would that fall into i mean that that story is science fiction you wouldn't argue that falls into sort of horror or not i wouldn't say so the the sequel children of ruin has certainly got elements in it that are just outright horrific but not for the reasons that you'd see horror in something like Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde or The Island of Dr. Morrow. I mean, I guess most people are going to think that was a stupid question anyway, because it's got a planet full of intelligent spiders, <laughs> which a lot of people are going to find pretty horrific. But Yeah, but they're the heroes of the book. Right. Yeah. All right. They're good friends. They are. <laughs> I don't see any problem with that. Arachnophobia is fairly close on that alphabetical list at the top of phobias, yeah? <laughs> we mentioned in passing that we talked about some of the scientists in Lovecraft before, but I think it is worth just at least mentioning in passing that Herbert West does, I think, present something fairly unique in, in terms of Call of Cthulhu, which is the mad scientist as protagonist in all of lovecraft's other stories you've got this hideous weird science that has been used by antagonists which is something fearful and sure i mean with herbert west everything he touches goes wrong but on the other hand we're we're sort of following his story i mean he's not mm. the narrator the narrator is is telling us all about him but 
he's not an antagonist. He's creating problems, but he's not an antagonist. What Matt was talking about earlier, or sorry, what both of you were talking about earlier, with sort of perhaps having a bout of madness and coming out of it and discovering that you've half-built this weird science device and so on, and that's fine, but... What Herbert West is doing as a protagonist is something quite different there. It is an act of will that he is deliberately going out to break the laws of nature, break the laws of the universe. He has, Mm. I'd say, a combination of benign motivation in terms of wanting to preserve life and, and hubris, because obviously there's an element of ego involved in that as well, that he is playing God. But... We don't, I think, see that in Standard Call of Cthulhu. And I'd argue that Herbert West, for all its comical asides and so on, is more akin to Standard Call of Cthulhu than Pulp Cthulhu. I don't think I've ever seen a character like that in Call of Cthulhu, that as soon as you have someone who's doing these things, they're automatically an NPC or an antagonist or whatever. But I'd love to see an active weird science, mad scientist type character in Standard Call of Cthulhu, someone who is trying to pursue and achieve these ends. Well, my character in when we played Orient Express, Matt. Your knife, your knife. Yeah, my character had worked with Herbert West in the trenches in in World War One or whatever. Yeah, so I sort of cast him as almost like an apprentice to, to Herbert West. You Renfield, you. (laughs) <laughs> I think there's a limit to how much you can play that up in the game, though, because you're one character amongst like maybe four or five others. Hmm. And yeah, it would take a particular kind of game where you could explore that, I think. Oh, sure. But I'm just saying I'd really like to be part of that hmm. game. I, I see no reason hmm. why we shouldn't have one like that. I think the rules for Pulp Cthulhu definitely make that more possible than regular mm. Cthulhu because the um, yeah. getting the insane talent where you can augment your skill, it even states in the book that this is pretty much the example of how West became able to do what he did by having a insane uh, augmented medicine skill. Using the, the regular rules in Call of Cthulhu, I think it would probably be fairly difficult without creating something that would be specific to your scenario that uh, you are creating mechanics to support it because otherwise you could just argue well this is just regular science that someone's drawing upon like regular physics to make a particular normal device it has to be something special i think to draw out that kind of effect because otherwise why haven't people done it already before I'd say that you can do it in Standard Call of Cthulhu. I'd say that if a character has any degree of Cthulhu Mythos skill, that by making a combined Cthulhu Mythos and, in that case, medicine role, then that's how they can perhaps make that reanimation serum. Or if they're doing a combined Cthulhu Mythos and engineering or Cthulhu Mythos and physics role, then that's how they make the Tillinghast resonator. Mm. So I think that kind of thing is possible for player characters to do. And the fact that Cthulhu Mythos is so low, I think, gives you a perfect pretext for why these things go wrong so often. Because, let's face it, Herbert West pushed a lot of roles and he failed those pushes. Lost his head too. And in Pulp Cthulhu, like Matt was talking about with augmented skills, the idea is there that you can set goals that include supernatural aspects, such Mm. as bringing the dead back to life. As you said, Scott, it allows you to roll a combined role against your Cthulhu mythos and, let's say, a regular skill like uh, medicine. If you succeed at both, 
you know, so you roll under your Cthulhu mythos and under your medicine, then you achieve your goal fully. If you only roll under one of them, then you achieve your goal Mm-hmm. but partially which is what i guess herbert west repeatedly did yes. and then he'd say it's just because the bodies aren't fresh enough yes. when you know is it that or because he failed one of his roles that's how that sort of addresses that kind of use of weird science there he put it in the fridge overnight that was his problem or maybe he didn't that was a problem <laughs> thinking about other inspiration from outside of the cthulhu mythos that we can perhaps bring into our games you know have you, have you got any ideas on that matt I was looking through various TV shows that I'd watched back in the day. I'm nowhere near as well-read as Scott, so it wouldn't be finding inspiration on the page so much, but more from, say, more from the silver screen for me. Mm. I was sitting down and thinking about yeah, how has tech been used in particular in some, in some shows that might have a maybe slightly horrific bent. And I came back to one of my favourite shows, which one day I will eventually track down the the seasons on box set that I haven't watched yet. It's the uh, the 90s remake of The Outer Limits, which a friend of mine pretty much accurately described as, oh, the show where humanity wins only one time out of seven. <laughs> that uh, it's always got a very uh, kind of downbeat or very uh, negative end to most episodes in that show. Thinking about that, there were two episodes that came to mind. One of them, going back to the likes of way, way back in time to H.G. Wells, thinking of the time machine. Oh, yeah. There's a great episode in The Outer Limits that does a spin on that. It's uh, called A Stitch in Time from uh, Season 2. It's actually the first episode of Season 2, where a character goes back, very uh, Sam Beckett-esque, trying to go back and right wrongs. But every time that she does this, like, for instance, killing the person that would kill a friend of hers and so on, so stopping a murder from taking place by committing one. She remembers both sets of timelines. So she has this growing problem that basically her head is getting full so much of information that eventually it's just going to burst and she will have a brain hemorrhage. But she can't cope with so much information being crammed into her head. Hmm. And that eventually... Someone obviously find uh, one. I think it's a policewoman finds out what she's been doing, and stops it from happening. But then ultimately picks up the mantle and does it herself. And it's just like a loop that begins all over again. That she goes back to kill the person that killed her friend, and so on and so on. Thinking that that's a nice little aspect on time travel. That you get the uh, well, the Back to the Future chalkboard moment of well, we've gone off on mm. this parallel tangent and here, but actually putting something a bit more a bit more of a cost on going back and changing the past that eventually you will end up destroying yourself in the process. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That was a fun one. Yeah. Another one that came up thinking, I mentioned in a previous episode about when we talked about films, Inception, things like Dream Machines. Mm. Again, at the end of season two, an episode called The Sentence, it plays with a trope that comes up again, in, surprisingly enough, almost only a few months earlier in a DS9 episode called Hard Time from uh, season four, oh, yeah. episode 18. Both of them play around with the idea that uh, to try and alleviate the prison system, that they'll just take a convicted criminal, put them in a chair, and then basically inject them full of memories of a lifetime sentence, and that they will try and rehabilitate them in the course of a few minutes that it takes to download all this information into them. Oh, right. Yeah. I was really surprised that there was one was released, so the, the Outer Limits episode was in August 96 and the DS9 episode was in April 96. There's no cross-pollination on the authors that I can find, but it's pretty much the same idea, just mm. played out slightly differently between the two episodes in two different series. Hmm. There's also a Black Mirror episode that's got a, a similar concept behind it called White Christmas. 
Oh yeah, the uh, the one with I wish it was Christmas every day playing over the end credits. <laughs> I'll never look at that song the same way. I must admit, it's the the setup isn't the same, but the payoff is pretty similar. Mm-hmm. The DS9 episode looks more the fallout from it after O'Brien's been subjected to this, whereas the Outer Limits episode yeah. is more of a case of it's the creator of this is ultimately punished by his own creation, and then it's only at the end you realise that he's been stuck in his own creation. And so it's less about the fallout, but more about the implementation. But ultimately, yeah, still still the same concept at the heart of it. And thinking, yeah, what if you could play around in the mythos with devices about memory? Or it's mm. almost potentially there's a parallel with the dreamlands here if time ran differently. It's, well, what is real? Going back to that inception kind of thing of are we are we mm. still in a dream? Are we are we still asleep? What is reality? Is this all in our own heads? Yeah, it's a nice little kind of existence kind of vibe to play around with mm. it does strike me that even if it isn't done as a punishment even if it's not something that's hellish if for example you had someone who was a dreamer who went off to a different part of the dreamlands where time ran differently and they then returned back to their life there in the waking world the following morning having felt like they'd lived 70 years in the dreamlands with all those memories then would they ever just be able to readjust to their life in the waking world? Mm. Mm. Yeah, they're going to be a very different person by the time they come back. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I like uh, Scott's take on, because I've been thinking of teleportation as well, thinking of the, yeah, let's put little bits of dimensional shambles inside people. You get into territory a bit like the fly, where you mm. start to have this mutation, when you break down and reassemble someone. I was trying to think, someone did mention to me a little while back in conversation, I'm sure Scott's going to know this story because I think it is quite famous, but say it's completely blanked me. There's another take on teleportation where I think it's there trying to work out teleportation between here and Mars or here and the moon. But it has a kind of moral uh, implication, potentially quite a horrific bent on it. It's similar to the prestige in a way that the teleportation creates a copy, but to make the copy, instead of in the prestige where it makes the copy and you've got two of you, in this, you destroy the original and then recreate them at the other end. Yeah. So you then think, well, am I actually the same person or am I just a copy of that person with their memories? Yes, yeah, I think that, that was a conversation we were having a little while back. The story in question is Rogue Moon by Aldous Budris. It's a, a short novel. And there's this whole other subplot about exploring this this weird structure on the moon and teleporting someone off to do that. And it's, it's full of lots of instant death and so on. But yes, it is the idea that the teleportation is not just going from a point A to point B, but it is yeah, replication at distance and what the moral implications of that are. Yeah, a bit like that. So that line in The Prestige, am I going to be the man in the box this time? Mm. Mm. Budris was there first. I think Rogue Moon was 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all those have a, a good potential to be used in a in a mythos setting, particularly teleportation. It's even if you aren't destroyed at one end and recreated at the other, it's what happens in that space between all that lack thereof. Yeah, I think that's one of the good things about creating Call of Cthulhu Adventures or Pulp Cthulhu Adventures is that you can incorporate pretty much any of these things into mm. a story because they can be kind of standalone. They don't have to fit in with other Call of Cthulhu stories, you know? So you could have one about teleportation or you could have one about uh, you know, whatever sort of science fiction element or weird science element that you want to sort of inject into it pretty much. Well, when I was thinking of all the various 
classic tropes from mad scientist stories from Frankenstein onwards, all these sort of transgressive things that these characters have done. I couldn't really think of any that I hadn't seen used to some extent in either Lovecraft or Call of Cthulhu. This very much seems to have been folded into the mix from the beginning. Lovecraft's characters, for example, there's at least three of them, if you count Joseph Kerwin, in fact four of them, who are finding ways of maintaining life. There's mm. Herbert West, there's Asnathwaite, or rather her father, there's Joseph Kerwin, and there's Dr. Munoz from Cool Air, all of whom have found ways of surviving death. Mm. That's obviously where it all kicked off with Frankenstein. I think that's always an interesting one to go back to because it is something that is inherently, as I say, transgressive, but it's the kind of thing that when it goes wrong can have really horrific consequences. I think if I were to pick one trope from Weird Science and really go to town with that in Call of Cthulhu, that would be the one. Whether that means that you're transplanting consciousnesses into non-human bodies to preserve them, whether you're trying to preserve people and having them becoming sort of living mummies or something like that, or, or whatever it involves, it's going to be nasty. Mm. Brains in jar territory. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it latches into that whole fear of death and like the afterlife and the whole like reason for religion and mm. and all that sort of thing. So I was looking around at a few places where we might find uh, weird science manifesting in some of the uh, Call of Cthulhu adventures. Um, so looking at uh, Peterson's Abominations, if you just flick, have a flick through, there's a scenario called The Voice on the Phone, mm -hmm. and you don't really need to look any further than one of the illustrations, which is just fantastic, of some like heads in jars and so on. I've, I've played that one, and it was a hell of a you lot have, of fun. <laughs> right? It does look fantastic. I've not actually played it, but uh, yeah, it looks awesome. I ran, I ran around with a chainsaw in that scenario, killing everything, everything that moved. It was great. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? And I think also there's another scenario, I won't say which one, which uses the old milk of Shubnigarath, which, uh, you know, that's a that's a... A good old standby for any weird science and uh you know just a good source of weirdness i think that we've seen used in in some other places too mm -hmm. so we've mentioned masks because that has a particular without going into uh, explicit detail there are elements of mm. uh, weird science very much in certain chapters of that but at the risk of self-promotion i think probably the call of cthulhu or rather the pulp cthulhu publication that does the most with weird science is probably the two-headed serpent Really, that's weird science from beginning to end. Mm. Yeah, we got like the flame pistol. It's a lot of fun in uh, in in the first chapter, I think, which is just a kind of incidental device. But again, it's like you know, it goes back to that thing. It's a powerful weapon, but <laughs> yeah. a there's the, the the threat of it getting into the hands of uh, the baddies and of local monkeys. I was, I was <laughs> just going to say the monkey was deadly enough on his own. <laughs> But also, you know, is a device, as with the Ithian lightning gun and things like that that we say elsewhere, that is perhaps just not very reliable. And when it doesn't work correctly, it works really badly. One of the porters saying, hey, sir, I dropped this box that looks a bit like a tea chest. Why is it ticking and making weird noises now? <laughs> 
I don't know about with YouTube, but with the two-headed serpent, I very consciously went back to things like Doc Savage, but uh, all sorts of stuff, and thought about the cool gadgets and items and weird stuff that I'd seen in those, and thought, right, you know, how could we put a Call of Cthulhu spin on some of these things? Mm. I think the question in my mind when doing a lot of the uh, development for my bits in uh, Two-Headed Serpent was very much, what would Indy do? So, yeah. yeah, shoot the guys. He's about to start running away and make a chase scene. Yeah. Uh, see someone <laughs> with a sword. Yeah, just shoot him. Yeah, but from a weird science point of view, there must have been sources that you drew upon there. It's not a genre that I've really been exposed to that much. So it's more like scattered bits and pieces here and there. It's more thinking of like individual scenes or half-forgotten memories that really I, I drew from, I think. Mm. It's almost very snapshot-like, thinking uh, this this image would work really well. I'm trying to think of specific sources I drew upon. There's one that I keep going back to, which isn't one of the classic pulps, which is actually a webcomic that started, I think, about 20 years ago. It's called Narbonic, and it's basically like a romantic comedy with mad scientists. It uses all the sort of classic mad scientist tropes from gothic literature and the pulps, and then just introduces these elements of comedy and romance into them and produces something that is absolutely bizarre. And it's I, I highly recommend it. Unfortunately, the early issues of it are quite rough. The woman who does it, Shannon Garrity, I think this was her first comic strip and she was certainly learning her craft as it went along. And so it takes some time before the artwork doesn't look terrible. But if you can power through that, personally, I think it's an absolute delight and very, very inspirational. There's also in Mansions of Madness, uh, one of the collections of Call of Cthulhu scenarios, there's... Uh, the code? There's a device in there. No, not that one. I'm thinking of the 19th hole. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which features, a, I mean, spoilers, but it, it features a, a device for projecting human consciousness into the ether or, you know, and or dimensions beyond. I think that one's by Stuart Boone. Who, uh, oh, right, yeah. Yeah. He's written some good stuff. Yeah. Yes, and I've also heard great things about the code, which again uses a lot of weird science stuff. Yeah, I've watched, uh, I think, two or three playthroughs, and that is great. I love that scenario. A few keepers have brought in their own stuff into it as well. So one day I really need to go back and read the the original material and see how much of it was the GM's additions to it and how much of it was the original as written. But that's got a great premise, and some of the descriptive got antics that people get up to in that that's a that's a lot of fun to play and watch i imagine and of course if you go to your old back issues of the blasphemous tome in issue three i did a pop cthulhu scenario in there called the new age of wonders mm. which has got an absolutely classic mad scientist at the center of it all so as well as kind of general weird science i think in pop cthulhu it focuses quite a lot on gadgets so these are if you think of you know, if you're just familiar with D&D, these are your, you know, your, your artifacts, really, you know, your deck of many things and, and so on. But here, the characters can either start with one, if they take the talent gadget, they, they get to start with a gadget, or if they take the talent weird science, they can build and repair gadgets. And there are, you know, a good list of, of gadgets in the book. So we've got the classic death ray. Yeah. And each of these has has stats and some limitations, like it's got a certain number of charges, once you've used those up, you've got to recharge it somehow. You've got the linguistophone, which I kind of feel 
might be the universal translator from Star Trek, but you know, it's a, a brass ear trumpet about a foot long, allows you to understand any language of Earth origin. I thought it was a little fish that you put in your ear. That's true. Could be that as well. The brain enhancer, which I like the sound of, a shower cap covered in valves and wires, which allows you to halve the reading time. I feel like you could do with that, Matt. Oh, yeah. Like your Mercedes car has a a thing that that senses when you're drifting Mm -hmm. from one lane to the other on the motorway. Yeah, the one that keeps telling me, tiredness detected, take a break, you moron. So you think when Matt reads, he should wear a special harness, perhaps attached to his chair, that's got spikes around it. So as soon as he nods off, it just pricks him in the head and wakes him up. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Wake up. Oh. Ah. I jerk back and it stabs me in the back of the head as well. Yeah. <laughs> Flawed design here, methinks. Well, you'll be twice as awake. <laughs> then there's the jetpack. And I don't know if you saw in Times Square recently, there was a bit of film of somebody yes. basically flying through t- Times Square with a jetpack. Wasn't it made out of drones, or am I misremembering? I think it was. It looked like that, yeah. Yeah, it looked like it was made out of drones. A while ago, this is going back a few years, I went to, uh, what's the place called? Alton Towers, uh, a theme Mm. park in the UK. And there's a ride on there called Air, where it straps you in, then lays you horizontal, and you fly through the air Superman-style in this harness going around this track. I remember coming off that ride feeling like I must have been a good deep Cthulhu shade of green, looking at everyone and basically telling me, if anyone gives me the opportunity to have a superpower, remind me not fucking flight, because that (laughs) thing made me so goddamn nauseous. It was unbelievable. That's a good point. I mean, it's not something you'd want to hit a Cthulhu, a Polk Cthulhu hero with, I don't think. But uh, the one time I've been on a microlite, I thought this would be great. And I wasn't really afraid of the going up and the flying as such, but it is that feeling of looking down and just that, I guess, vertigo or whatever, but that, that sense of, of looking down and, and thinking, oh, actually, no, I start to feel a bit sick mm. now. I'm going to look at the horizon. I'm going to just focus on that. I think there's this is one of the differences between weird science in pulp action and science fiction and in, say, Lovecraftian horror, in that... If you are looking at the classic, say, Doc Savage kind of pulp weird science adventures, then you are brushing aside all those realistic considerations about what the effects Mm. on people would be, because this is an adventure, you don't care about that. In the same way as Superman can, say, carry someone up in the air, up into the upper atmosphere, and they don't freeze to death on the way up or get burnt up on the way back down or (laughs) end up colliding with a bird halfway up and dying or something. If you're looking at it from a horror point of view, classic Call of Cthulhu, then looking at those human aspects and how human frailties and limitations would mesh with these weird things, as I'd say, very on point, you'd really want to do that because that would accentuate the horror. Yes, all right, you you have found this way of, of grafting the wings from a bayaki onto your back and flying and so on, but the human body wasn't really meant to fly and you're going to have a miserable time up there thinking of how close you can get that little dividing line between comedy and horror there's one of the opening scenes from the boys that always reminds me of uh, superman catching lewis lane yeah lewis lane should have been basically this red mist in the air after this (laughs) shooting bullet of a man comes out of nowhere (laughs) (laughs) you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias you can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media presences. 
We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, once again, it is that time when we head off to the laboratory and fire up the Thankatron. We have a number of new people whose thanks we would like to beam through the ether. Well, first of all, let's send out a generalised set of thanks to everyone who is listening to the podcast and anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we're going to send direct, tight-focused beams into the minds of a number of new backers now. Yep, beginning with a thanks to Jonathan Shaw. Also, thanks to Ian Scanlon. And thank you very much to Andrew Cousins. And thanks to Derek Robertson. And thank you very much to Sean Witt. Aha, and a familiar name here. Thank you very much to Spencer, a.k.a. Free Thrall, of the wonderful Keep Off the Borderlands podcast, who I have been recording with recently as part of Grizzly Peaks. So, yeah, thank you very much, Spencer. And thanks to Morgan Frashaw. And thank you very much to Zach Tishman. Hopefully I've pronounced that right for you there. And thank you very much to Jane Newtonen. And thanks to Al Smith. Aha, who is a very active presence on our Discord. So yeah, thank you very much, Al. I love the next one. This is such a good name, so I'm glad it's come around for me. Thank you very much to Naked in My Basement Making Pipe Bombs. (laughs) I'm sure we're all now on a list somewhere, on a watch list. (laughs) And thank you very much to Joel Finnis. And thanks to Brolin Graham. And thank you very much to Jan Zelotnowski. And hopefully I've pronounced that right for you there. And thank you very much to Mike Shepard. And thanks to Jean-Philippe Ranger. And also thanks very much to Martin Kaz. I think we're probably even more confident this time than usual that we have completely mangled some of your names. So if we have, please do get in touch and we'll have another pass at them and try not to be so atrocious next time. We do have a 99% skill in mangle surname. It gave us 2d6 Sam reward when we got that high, but it still has its downsides. Okay, well, I have one bit of news to add in to the end here. Chaosium have an upcoming book relevant to our interest today called Eldritch Science. I don't know any more than that. That's all I know. Ooh, okay. You heard it here first, possibly. Well, that's all the exciting news I've got. So uh, until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com Hello?